Anyone know when the movie Shawshank Redemption came out? Anyone guess? 1985, 1994. Yeah, you got it, 1994. 1994. Uh, I think in 1994, our family had moved to America and I was learning English. 1994. The movie Shawshank Redemption follows, I mean, some of you guys are much younger, right? So you guys are like, who is wrongly convicted of murder of his wife and her lover, sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary. Andy maintains his innocence and befriends a fellow inmate, Ellis, known as Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And the climax of this wonderful movie, if you haven't seen it, I I highly recommend it. I think it's available on most platforms. The, The climax of this movie happens when Andy... The main character, the banker who was wrongly accused, after spending 19 years in, behind the prison bar, he crawls through the tunnel emerging on the other side of the prison war. wall. During the escape, the audience learns the full extent of Andy's meticulous planning, which involves exposing the corruption within the prison and securing justice of his false conviction. A cin- cinematic masterpiece. I mean, people in our generation, my generation, at least we say, man, it's a wonderful masterpiece. The movie captures one of the most riveting moments in film history. Yet in order to fully appreciate the moment, this, this, this picture of Andy getting out of, coming out of the tunnel and, and experiencing freedom, in order to really appreciate that moment, one needs to see the journey, all that Andy and Red endured, and the brutal condition, corruption, and challenges his face against the guards, and, and all those things. And that's what makes this movie, this climax of the movie, so wonderful, so powerful. And precisely in this series through, through the Advent season, at least this year, precisely this is what I'm hoping to do as we work through both Old Testament and New Testament passages We're not just in Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew in this Advent series like the the, the classic Christmas passages, but I'm hoping as we look through the the, the bigger picture, we started from Genesis, we're going to be in Isaiah today, and by zooming out, I really want to answer the question why a Jewish baby was born in a humble major that first Christmas morning. So last week was in Genesis now we're in Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Because Christ being born is that climax moment. But how, how do we get there? How do, how, do we got, how, do we, how do we get here? Isaiah 59. Let me read for us. Actually, before we read, let me actually tell you how the book of Isaiah could be complicated. We haven't gone through the book of Isaiah here Maybe they'll, they'll come in the future. But really, it's divided into three major parts. Different scholars would argue five parts, eight parts, but really three major parts. Chapters 1 to 37, <clears throat> it's the prophet's message of judgment, Isaiah's message of God's judgment. Isaiah condemns God's people of their idolatry, injustice, moral corruption, all the things that they fail to live out. Yeah, they brought their sacrifice to the temple and they pretended to be good Jewish people, but at the end of it, they were not living right. And so chapters 1 to 37 is really Isaiah's, God's message through prophet Isaiah of, hey, God is not pleased with the way you're carrying out your life. 
Isaiah 38 to 55 is characterized by a message of comfort and hope, actually. The, the, this part of the book is thought to have been written during the Babylonian exile. God says, I'm going to raise up other nations because, because of what you have done and because your hearts are far from me. I'm going to raise up other nations. And in chapters 38 to 55, it speaks of God's compassion, the immediate release from captivity, the eminent release from captivity, and the eventual return to the homeland. There's this hope. Hey, one day from Babylonia, you're going to return home to Jerusalem. Chapters 56 to 66, the passage that we're in today, because we're in 59, addresses the time after the return. They've actually, God's people have returned home. And focusing on themes of restoration and renewal, God's people have returned home after decades of, decades of living under oppression, right? Hands of Babylonians, Assyrians. They've returned to Jerusalem only to find the city in great ruins, without a temple, without a defensive walls, without a justice system that's working, and even a, there was no central government. And, and, and obviously, to everyone's surprise, as people returned, their lifestyle did not change. There was still violence. There was still poverty, large. There's still chaos everywhere. And God's people have not learned their lesson. They've simply returned back, and they still have not learned their lesson. The wealth were still stealing from the poor and the vulnerable. There was this pervasive disregard for justice and righteousness that was very clearly described in God's Mosaic law. And it's here in this moment, this pivotal moment of Israelite story, God speaks the message of hope and renewal. That's Isaiah 59. So let me outline how we're going to walk through Isaiah. We're going to be in the whole, whole, whole chapter. So part one is going to be silence, God's silence. Part two, injustice. Part three, confession. And part four, response. Silence, injustice, confession, response. So first, let, let, let's, let's read. Let's actually read this passage together. Let me read for us. This is Isaiah 59. If you have your Bible, it's open up. It's also on the screen. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to, to, to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is cursed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They made their roads crooked. No one treads on them, knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope 
for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We, are, we all grow like bears. We mourn and mourn like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquity. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart-lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and who he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displaced him and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So first, let's talk about silence, verse 1. See, Isaiah begins this conversation by defending the accusation. And what's the accusation in verse 1? The accusation is, is the Lord's hand too short? Are, are, are the Lord's ears too dull to hear? All of this chaos is going on, right? Israelites have returned, and they, and they believe this is God's doing by returning them to their city of Jerusalem, yet their lives are in shambles. And they look at their situation, and they go, maybe our God is not powerful enough. Maybe he's not able. Maybe Assyrians and the Babylonians, the gods that they serve, are more powerful. And there's this blatant accusation against, against Yahweh. Yahweh, only if you are strong enough, only if you are powerful enough, loving enough, our lives will not be in shambles. Israel's accusation against God isn't anything new, right? This, this, this Isaiah passage when you read book of Isaiah, it just comes back, comes back. Not just Isaiah, but Jeremiah, different passages. There is this accusation often against God. In fact, at times, many of us may have, maybe not said this out loud, but have thought these thoughts. That may have accused God in a similar way. About 30 years ago, a, rab- a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner authored a book titled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the book was immensely popular at the time. New York's bestseller for a whole year, sold 4 million copies. And really, the main point of the book, the author in this book, poke hole at the idea of God's sovereignty. That's the whole idea. Is God really truly sovereign? 
And his main argument is that bad things happen to good people not because God is unloving. That's not his argument. Instead, it's because though God is benevolent, though God is good, he's not powerful enough. He's not all-powerful. And again, at the time, it was such a popular book. Why? Well, it, it, this, this was largely Jewish audience that followed the Torah, that understood the idea of God's sovereignty. Yet this book became so popular because, in a way, it gave an explanation to people about how they might feel about their lives, the disappointment, the grieving, the challenges. And perhaps as we inch closer to 2024 and wrap up this year, perhaps some of us feel that way about how things have unfolded this year. At least for Israelites, that's how many Israelites felt about their state of life in this passage. And really, Isaiah, in this passage, confronts this accusation, saying, guys, his hand is not too short. His ears are not too dull. He's able to hear. He's able to save. But here's the problem. But before that, imagine, put yourself in shoes of Israelites. I mean, some of, some of these guys were born in foreign nation as exiles, and they, they heard about this return, this eventual return, and they finally get home, and they realize home is not what they thought. Some of you guys will be visiting home this winter. Some of you guys have visited home, and you had all these wonderful ideas about visiting home. Mom's cooking, seeing friends, just life. And then you go home, and maybe it's different. And, and, and Israel has definitely felt like, man, this is not what we expected. After all that God has done to bring us back to our land, and yet our city lies in ruin, and it's in shambles. And, and time after time, God made it clear, right? Throughout their time in exile, and even before exile, God made it clear why they were driven away from their home. Zechariah 13, 9, this passage says, I will put this, this third into the fire and refine them. He's talking about Israelites and, and what he's hoping to do in the time of exile. He says, I'm going to put them into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. So God's intention for, for, for sending God's people away from their home in the hands of these oppressive countries and empires is, is the fact that God wants to refine them as gold is refined by fire, that their faith, the quality of their, their faith would, would be what? Would mature. The quality of their faith would be refined. And Zechariah uses the imagery of metal being refined by fire to describe a period of testing and purification. So God says your time in Babylonia... It was time of purification and refining. It was time for you to revisit your life and say, is our way of life pleasing to the Lord? Yet Israel, uh, apparently in the beginning of this passage, they have no idea. They just assume, well, God, God is simply not powerful enough. And friends, the first observation from this text for us is there are times there are seasons where God may be silent in our lives. God may feel distant or silent, or you're praying, you're fasting, you're asking God, God, show me a direction. 
and God seems really quiet. And it's not because he is unloving. That's very clear in the scripture. And it's not because he is unable to hear. That's, 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 that's the, the idea of this book. But really, at the end of the day, through Zechariah, what we see is God, in those seasons, those moments, God wants to refine the quality of your faith. God wants to renew and mature your faith in Him. And He does that through different seasons. Second part, injustice. So Isaiah, as part of defending God and talking about, hey, the reason why you are experiencing all of these difficulties. It's not about God's unfaithfulness or it's not God's inability, but it's what? Verses 2 to 8, Isaiah calls out exactly the reason why God seems silent. Verse 2, your sins have separated you from the hand of God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Verse 3, for your hands are stained with innocent blood. Your fingers and hands are stuck. Interesting imagery in the original language. It's this idea of hand being stuck, almost gripping something and unable to let go. Evokes this powerful imagery of hands holding tightly or stuck to this idea of violence and sin. He says it's because you're addicted to sin, addicted to living unjustly. Verse 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. What Isaiah is saying is it's not simply the sin of commission, right? Not just what we do. We steal from the poor. We cheat the government of whatever. But it's also about sin of omission, where we remain silent in the face of injustice. Verse 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. It's not talking about what we do. It's about what we don't do. And he says both are just as damaging when we remain silent in the face of injustice, which many were doing at the time, God says that's just as damaging. Earlier this year, we spent a whole month speaking about the idea of God's justice. And we invited International Justice Missions, and they were willing to come and work with us and, and really help us become more aware of these issues. And, and one of the major projects, IJM Korea, the Korean office overseas, is called OSEC, Online Sexual Exploitation of Children, especially in the country of Philippines. And, and Korea, and the reason why the Korean office is involved in this project is, uh, one of the main reasons is a large number who are purchasing, who are subscribing, who are buying uh, the, this kind of online content is people from Korea. So, so in other way, they really want to talk. U.S., Korea, uh, I, think, I think U.K., major buyers. Because people are buying, there's a product, right? And, and they gave us the stats. Nearly half a million Filipino children are tra- were trafficked in 2022 to make these sexual contents. And many of them by members of their own family, like their moms and their, their uncles, and recently, Philippines, Philippines has become the global epic center of this new form of crime because why? They speak English. And there's this, interact, this nasty interaction aspect of, of online streaming and things like this. And so Philippines has really become, post-COVID, at last probably three, four years, has become epic center. So when I sat down with the head of IJM Korea and the team, 
they told us one of the reasons, yes, they speak English and it's easily accessible and there's, a, there's poverty that you can't, I mean, we can't imagine. But it's also because Philippines justice system is currently not fully capable of putting away these perpetrators. They simply don't have the language or the law or the structures to be able to actually punish these criminals. So when the government fails to take action, this becomes a breeding ground for greater evil. But thankfully, last two and a half years with IJM Korea working closely with IJM Philippines, the field office there, they were able to tackle this challenge little by little. And they partnered with local government. So Isaiah Korea and Isaiah Philippines, they've been able to partner with local uh, police officers, the lawmakers, uh, to hold criminals accountable for these horrendous things that they do to children. And through their partnership, they were able to rescue, rescue close to 1,200 victims. That's, praise God, 1,200 victims, 346 survivors, arrest 372 suspects, and put away 211 perpetrators. I mean, 372 arrested, 211 put away. If you see the numbers, if you study that, it's still large, the, the system is still largely lacking. Because, again, the justice system is not set up where they can actually appropriately punish these perpetrators. But, but thankfully, small changes, and God is doing something wonderful. And so if you're interested in what IJM is doing, I want to encourage you uh, to, to log on and, and support in any way you can. But really, what's happening in Philippines with this new, new, new crime is, 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 is what I think the Scripture is talking about. When people remain silent... When there is, when, when people don't enter the, co- the, the, the co- court of law with justice, I mean, it's, it creates a breathing ground for just terrible, horrible things. And that, was, that was exactly what was happening in this context. So Isaiah says, this is the reason why your life is the way you are. This is the reason why you had to live away from your, your home for so many years. Verse 9 to 15, this is the third section. This is their confession. How do people respond to Isaiah's rebuke? This is one of the rare times Israelites hear and they acknowledge. Verse 9 to 11, this is the message version. Uh, I think it message version um, relates the, the, the emotion and the, 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 the content really well. It says, verse 9 to 11, it says, This is Israelites replying to Isaiah now. We are far cry from fair dealing. And we are not even close to right living. We long for light but sink into darkness. Long for brightness but stumble through the light. Like the blind, we inch along a wall, groping eyeless in the dark. We long for brightness but stumble through the light. You know, the words of Isaiah 59, the confession of Israelites is something rather honest about their confession. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to bet most of us wake up each morning with genuine desire to live a good life. At least that's, as Christians, that's my hope. I think most of us, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to ruin someone's day today. I'm going to make someone miserable. I'm going to make my wife miserable today. I'm going to purposely pick on, bully my daughter and make her. I don't think anyone, any one of us wake up and say, we're going to do really bad things. 
There are some people like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. But most of us, we wake up with genuine desire to live in the light, to live in the truth. Yet so often, before we know it, we find ourselves in darkness, in sin, in sort of, how do I get myself, how do I get here? How do, how do I get into this argument? How do I get into this? How do I get addicted to this or relying on this? And there's something really honest about the confession here. Verse 12 to 15, they continue, our wrongdoings pile up before you, God. Our sins stand up and accuse us. Our wrongdoings stare us down. We know in detail what we've done. What are they expressing? They're expressing what? Sense of guilt. Even before, God, you, you tell us what we're doing, we, our sins, they accuse us. They stand up and they look us down. And some of us probably feel that way as we live life, as we reflect on our day. You feel judged. You are filled with guilt, shame. But really honest. I, I love the honesty of the Israelites here. But for Israelites, they had to lose everything. I mean, for them in this context, they had to lose everything, be driven away from their home and live as exiles for years and years to finally come to realize it's not God, it's me. And it's unfortunate, but this is what it took for the Israelites to see the reality of their sin. And for some of us, Israelites are really stubborn. I'm also very stubborn. Some of you guys are stubborn as well. We almost have to hit rock bottom to realize our way of life is not working. Several years ago, I went for a body checkup. Uh, my in-laws are re- really worried that I'm going to die before I can take care of their daughter. So they're always, they're really into these body, full body checkups. And they're really expensive. But I, I remember I was like 33, third year into marriage. I think they could tell like, okay, Sangmin might, if he doesn't take care of his body, he might not live long, right? So they recommended that we get our body checkup. And I, like I, we had Emma, um, a firstborn. I was busy in ministry. I was not taking care of myself. I was not working out. I was eating whatever I wanted. So I knew when I got the result, it's going to be, and, and to make the matters worse, the people, the hospital that we did it at, they're friends with my father-in-law, right? So they're going to have a side conversation about how my, my physical condition, right? So I go into the meeting, and um, the evaluation form comes out, and in the evaluation form, I was 33 at the time, right? This was like many years ago, 33 at the time, and that was my actual age, and it said my body age was 43 years old. <laughs> I was like, 10 years, right? I don't even, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how they come up with this, right? They just make this stuff up, right? But I feel like every time I see a doctor, the doctor's always like, you're not eating right, you're overweight, you know, all the time, right? But and when I saw that number 4-3 next to my actual age, I was like, okay, I hit rock bottom. And that really, that really made me think long and hard about taking care of my body. Along with that, my father-in-law always, you know, He's, he's like always wanting me to do my body checkup. Um, and and it, it took me a long time to be like, you know what? I got to take care of my, my body or otherwise it, w- it won't be here. 
And, 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 and that's physical, right? Our, our physical health. But what about our spiritually? I, I really pray, this is my prayer, that as we journey with Jesus, that people in our congregation, we don't have to hit rock bottom spiritually, emotionally, to realize we need to do things differently. And I, I hope for some of you guys, today is the day. Today is the day you say, Lord, I want to live differently. I want to I make different choices. I want to live with different purpose. I want to live with intentionality. I want to live according to your law. Whatever that is. Otherwise, it, this is what we're facing. Not because God is God, of, God who judges. Not because God is this mean, mean, divine being that wants to make our lives miserable. No, it, it's the simple law of life. God created you and I to live in relationship with Him in that garden, to be connected to Him. But when we are disconnected from the giver of life, what happens? Death enters. But it gets better. Verse 16 to 20, and this is the last section, there's this brilliant turn of events in our passage, in many passages and throughout the Old Testament. Verses 6 to 20, this is God's response. Now, accusation. Isaiah says, hey, this is why you're there. Israelites confess and, and repent. And verse 6 to 20, it says, God saw that there was no man. So God accepts their, God, God hears their cry and God looks and says, there was no man. No one to intercede. No one to reverse the curse of sin. Because God desires his people, to, his people to return to him, but he sees there is no way because there is, there is issue of what? Sin. Then it says in verse 16, then his own arm, because there's no one else, his own arm brought them salvation or brought him salvation. What was the accusation in verse 1? Where do we start? The accusation was, God, your arm is not long enough. Your arm is not strong enough. And God says, guess what? My arm is going to save you. The answer is emphatic, yes. Your arm, God's arm is long enough. God's arm is strong enough. His ears are not too dull to hear the cries of people. And, and, and so he says, God says, I'm going to rescue you myself. Where there is no peace, I'm going to reestablish peace. Verse 8 says, repeats this idea of no peace, no peace. And God says, I'm going to restore peace. And when he comes, when he sends our rescue, he will bring two things with him, justice and grace. Verse 17 and 18, we witness a powerful imagery of a warrior adorned in righteousness and salvation. A redeemer who will not turn a blind eye to any sin. Where peace is sent, but not at the expense of justice. This is important. Because God is righteous. God is just. And God wants to rescue his people. But what's the problem? There is sin. God has to deal with sin. And God says, I'm going to send shalom, but not at the expense of justice. Every sin, without exception, will face its reckoning. Now in verse 20, God says, I'll send a redeemer to Zion. I'll send redeemer to the city. In the midst of the imagery of justice and vengeance, there is hope. It is in this paradox that we find the essence of the gospel. 
And this is the gospel, the gospel we talk about every week. And I think Paul picks up and, and, and describes how the vengeance and grace come together in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul speaking to us, the church. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our shalom. He's our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Friends, we are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with saints and members of household of God, built on the foundation of what? Not our own righteousness, not our own ability to overcome. On the foundation of apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's the message of Christmas, isn't it? that our battles, because this is a warrior Christ that Isaiah is describing. In fact, the third part of the book of Isaiah, it's about warrior Christ. And this warrior Christ, who is sent by God into the city of Zion, he battles for us, and we win our battles, not because we are good, we are able, we are not sinful, but because it's Jesus who fights for us. Amen? That's it. Nothing else. Don't let anyone tell you there's more or there's a better way. No, it's through Jesus. And it's only through you and I experiencing that love, trans- transformation will happen. But transformation itself does not save us. It's warrior Jesus, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time in the book of Isaiah. Lord, there's so much uh, of myself and, and perhaps many of us in this room that we can relate to the words of Israelites. There are times, Lord, where we accuse you. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your ability to save us. Yet, Lord, you're patient and you remind us once again that it's not through our own right living, it's not through our own sacrifice, not through our own willpower that we can actually come and be received by you. It's only through warrior Jesus, the lion and the lamb, who not only battles for us, but who laid down his own life so that we can gain life. Lord, if anyone is struggling, 
with hopelessness, with doubt, with fear. Lord, would you meet us where we are today? Would you meet us where we are today? We thank you. We love you.